You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Brandon. How are you doing on this fine Thursday morning? Hello, sir. I am doing rather well. Hey, um, just quickly before we get started, mm. follow up. You know how we we're talking about the Robin Hood IPO last week? Oh yes. We yeah. Do you remember? We, we made some predict. <laughs> I don't, can't remember what we what we predicted. You have to run us through. Well, again. I, I will tell you, Hamish. You predicted that this week Robin Hood would be at ninety to hundred dollars a share. Okay. I went bold and I said Robin Hood was going to be at hundred and fifty dollars, give or take five. Mm-hmm. And because I, I, I was just like, I was going in all in on my thesis that Robin Hood was going to be the next meme stock. Turns out Robin Hood currently sits at $51.19. Wow. So, neither, we were not- Where, uh, <laughs> where was it bef- at the start of the week? Okay. So, at the start of the week, it was about $63. It was like it's, when we made the prediction, it was at like $70. $70. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, it's actually come off- Quite significantly. Wow. Well, yeah. there you go. You, I, I said I didn't want to make a prediction, and that's that's why. <laughs> <laughs> stick to it. We we better stick to our day jobs. Oh, speaking about getting things wrong as well. We started the last podcast, and I was happy. I was uh, I, I was saying that the COVID cases in Melbourne had kind of gone down. This week, oh gosh, we're back in another lockdown. So. Oh really? <laughs> oh man. So uh, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a quite a yo-yo kind of experience over the past few months. So, we're back in another lockdown for another couple of weeks. So, mm. <sighs> I'm sure Sydney's the same. Oh, um, yeah, how how yeah. bad is it? How many daily cases are you guys adding at, in Melbourne? Yeah, the last few days at the moment has been about 20 cases a day. Um, so, okay. you know, higher than we've, we've had for a really long time. But, I mean, if you compare that to Sydney, I think Sydney this morning had 340 or something like that. So... Yeah, um, yeah, they're in trouble. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Here's what it, it is. is. Yeah, <laughs> we can't do much about it. Just yeah. want to get want to get our vaccines going. Let's get some more vaccines already. <laughs> yeah, I think we we just got another contract with Moderna. I think for the first time, All right. we're going to get some Moderna here in Australia. But um, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully the, the timeline can speed up a little bit. Last time I checked, I think mm. they were on track to have like 70% of people vaccinated by February next year or something crazy. Wow. Just oh. so far away. It's just not fast enough, is it? No, it's just not good enough. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, it just gets you in such a such a down mood thinking about all this. It's crazy that- Well, first of all, it is- When you think about it, it's crazy that we've got- viable vaccines uh, like after what a year and a bit yeah but then again i mean i can't help but look back and just be like man this has been going since like well it's it's covid19 it's been going since late 2019 and it's now august in 2021 and it's still like oh i wonder how many times you've either said or heard the word covid19 (laughs) 
<laughs> in the past two years. It'd be a, it'd be a lot. God, yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you look in the scheme of like vaccines generally over time, I mean, a year is quick, but doesn't feel quick when you're uh, when you're living it. <laughs> so yeah, a year is lightning. Yeah. But anyway. That's I, I just don't want to talk about COVID. No, that's oh, enough. Such a downer. Right. No more. What are we talking about? To, oh, I'm I'm going to talk a, a little bit about the Olympics, which oh. can't, might be uh, interesting. The economics of the Olympics. Some people mm. might know the Olympics is not uh, the economics aren't great. <laughs> um, also got an interesting story about um, fashion turning into uh, quite bad landfill and the business that thrives off of off of that system. So we'll talk about that. That's quite interesting. I I saw that article this morning. I, I just read the whole thing. I was so interested. Um, inflation numbers. Inflation numbers are here for July. Ooh. And what are you talking about? A little bit more on what Phil Towns' moves were in the past quarter. Yeah. So, we've got his uh, his SEC filing for the Rule 1 fund. So, get to take a look at, uh, at what moves he's been making in the markets. Right. Okay. Well, let's get stuck into it then. Yeah. So, today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. So, basically, you can pull in all of your trades either manually or automatically from one of the associated, if you're with one of the associated brokers, which is pretty much most of the major brokers. So, it's very likely you'll be able to do that. Um, And it'll basically allow you to track all of the different types of gains. So, capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, it will do all of those calculations for you. Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you just hold foreign currencies. And then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So, ShareSide generates up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to work out things such as your capital gains, dividend income and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. That site spelled S-I-G-H-T, ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. So, use that link, sign up to a free plan. You can track up to 10 holdings for as long as you want. Uh, or you can also use that link if you want to sign up to a paid plan for more features. And if you do use that link, you'll get four months off a yearly subscription. So, go check it out if you're interested. And once again, thanks to everyone who has used that link to sign up to ShareSite and is supporting the podcast. Absolutely. Where do you want to start today? Yeah, I mean, we could uh, we could start with uh, you know, let, let's go through these inflation numbers because this okay. is this is probably I mean, maybe it's not that interesting to people, but it's probably the honestly the biggest headline in the in the finance world. Um, it's quite important on, on a month by month basis. It is, and it's it's something that everyone is watching, and, and we've spoken about it um, a, a lot of times on the podcast because you know if inflation continues to rise then maybe the Federal Reserve has to raise interest rates to combat that. And uh, the raising of interest rates is putting pre- down, would put downward pressure on stock prices. So, we're in a very sensitive situation right now where if inflation continues to run, uh, it could be very bad news for stocks. If it doesn't, if it reverts back to very, very low levels like we've seen for a long time, then the stock market will probably continue to, to rally um, and experience gains. So, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very important thing that we're watching at the moment. Um, and we've today, just this morning, gotten in uh, July's US inflation numbers. So, on a year-over-year right. year basis, uh, inflation came in at 5.4%. 
Um, and just for just for um, for for reference, the the ideal range that the Federal Reserve is looking for is between two and three percent. So um, we're still seeing inflation that's outside of that range, um, considerably mm. higher than that range. Um, but of course, we are looking at year over year data. So we're looking at um, a comparison in prices between now and a time when we were probably in the deepest part of uh, the pandemic where there was mm. considerable price declines um, in a lot of areas. Um, so, 5.4%, actually the same as last month. So, exact same year over year. That's interesting. Figure. Yeah. So, I mean, up until this point this year, we've kind of seen increases in the year over year inflation. This is the first time we've seen flat from, you know, of the year over year from month to month. Um, mm. And that kind of for some people will indicate that we're reaching kind of the top of the, of the, uh, you know, a bell curve kind of chart. Like we've just had this massive increase in inflation. It's going to come back down or it could mm. be somewhat of an inflection point. Of course, <laughs> we don't really know um, mm. what it's going to look like. Same as expectations as well. Um, so, okay. Very interesting. Um, actually matched the uh, largest increase uh, since August 2008. So, both last month and this month um, were, of course, the same. And it's the biggest in, what, 13 years or so, which is, <laughs> it is uh, interesting. I think the month-over-month data is probably more important to look at because, as I mentioned, the year-over-year, yeah. you're kind of comparing last year to this year. And, and last year was a little fairly abnormal. I think people can... Uh, can uh, recognize that. Whereas month over month where we're comparing increases from say, well, in this case from June to July, um, that's just this year. So, that's just continued inflation. Um, Mm. Month over month inflation came in at 0.5%, which sounds low and it actually is lower than last month. The month over month last month was 0.9%. But 0.5% is not small. Um, like, yeah. Just to, if, if, if you extrapolate that over across 12 months. I- exactly. So, if you're getting 5% compounded every single month over month for a year, you're looking at a 6% annual inflation rate, which is really high. Um, yeah. About twice as high as, as what we would be comfortable seeing on a consistent basis over time. So, um, it is slowing down the month over month. Uh, it's 1% last month was crazy. That's just a ridiculous amount. We went from seeing 1% inflation for entire years for many years to 1% yeah. in a month, which is really high. Um, so, it is slowing down, but yeah, it's still something to to kind of keep an eye on, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's inflation's a weird one, very psychological as well, because you can get to that point where uh, oh, I think we're a fair way away from that point, but it's almost as though people start to expect inflation. This is when mm. inflation turns into hyperinflation. Hasn't you know? Hasn't happened. I don't think. Wait, was, has there been much like hyperinflation in the US or Australia? I don't know. I'm, I'm not good with my economic history, but in not, uh, not actual yeah. by definition hyperinflation. I mean, right. in, as far as in, it got in the US and Australia is 15 or so percent, I think, or 10 percent, which is really yeah. high. Like that shouldn't be understated, but nothing yeah. like uh, what you know Zimbabwe is seeing with one million percent inflation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> numbers, and like that's that. the thing. That's the thing which is interesting about inflation. It can be very psychological. So, you can get into this trap of everybody uh, expects prices to continue to rise. So, you know, people like, for example, I did a video on the Zimbabwean hyperinflation once and it got to a point where, you know, store owners would 
would would come out and adjust their prices several times per day. Mm. So the loaf of bread they would market in the morning as you know three dollars, and then later on they would market as four dollars, and then later in the day they'd market <laughs> as six dollars, and then ten dollars tomorrow, fifteen dollars, and uh, and they were like at, at the worst, I think they were getting millions, if not literally billions of percentage points of inflation per month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is obviously uh, at at that point the currency is is toast and people just started using US dollars. Um, yeah. Well, the higher that inflation gets, the more it just drives people to spend because if you have a thousand dollars or yeah, you know, if you have a hundred dollars just to keep it simple sitting in mm. a bank account and you're confident based on, you know, the recent numbers that that's going to be worth 10% less, for example, um, in the next year. Um, and, you know, and the other way you could think of it is the thing you want to buy is going to be 10% more expensive in the next year. Um, mm. then you're, probably just going to go out and buy it. Why would you sit- Get it now. Especially when we're in this environment with 0%, you're earning 0% in a savings account. So, there's a massive incentive to buy things that you're probably going to buy at some point over the next five years. Like people probably think, well, maybe I'm going to buy a car over the next five years or um, I don't know, maybe I'm going to buy a new TV over the next five years. And if people start to think, well, I've got money in my account, I'm not earning anything on it and- inflation is now it's 5.4%. It's going to 6%. People might mm. go out and spend and that drives inflation even further. So, it'll yeah, be interesting. That, nah, that's a good point. It'll be interesting to see what happens with it. We also look at core inflation, which is this new, well, I, I don't know how recent they, it, it, how recent it actually is, but- Yeah, what is that? So, core, in, <laughs> the, this is the thing with CPI data and inflation is they're always looking- this, this is just my opinion, but I feel like economists are always looking for ways to manipulate data to give their, to, to support like their opinion about what is yeah. going on. Confirmation um, bias. Yeah. So, core inflation is this, this uh, measure that is a measure of CPI. So, the increases in consumer prices, um, mm. but it excludes food and energy. And the reason why is because those two areas are notoriously um, very volatile. Um, so, it kind of makes sense oh, okay. on a month-on-month basis. I mean, sometimes fuel, I'll talk about fuel in a second, like gasoline and, and petroleum. Um, sometimes they go up massive rates over short periods of time. You, you probably even notice that if you just go to the, the petrol station, right? Sometimes it's 10 cents higher or 10 cents lower within a month or a couple of days. It's very volatile. So, right. it can kind of cause a, the inflation number to look... Um, you know, worse or, or better than it actually is. But core inflation rose 0.3%. Um, and uh, as I just said here from the article, economists believe that this is a more reliable indicator because it excludes the volatile changes in food and petroleum prices. Um mm. And uh, that actually, you know, that 0.3% number is a lot lower than the overall inflation number. And that actually is because energy prices rose significantly during the month. So, gasoline right. was up 2.4%. Um, month over month. And uh, mm. I mean, gasoline's up, I think it was 41% year over year. So, you know, Oof, that's just an wow. example of, you know, and maybe in the next year it's down significantly. We had just, a, what was it, a couple of years ago where there was a massive oversupply in gasoline or maybe it was even last year. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And uh, yeah. prices went down massively. So, it can be very, very volatile. So, it does make sense in a way that you want to maybe exclude it and, and look at what the core inflation is. But to me, food... Food is volatile, but it's also very, very important <laughs> to consider. Yeah. You can't always exclude it. Um, one of the biggest movers in the inflation numbers was food away from home. So, like eating out, 
that was up 0.8%. Um, and while that may reflect just a volatile period, it also could reflect a, a, a long-term trend. I mean, we've spoken about a number of different restaurants that are uh, like Chipotle, for example, that have had so much demand and actually increases in the cost in their costs that they've actually put in significant price increases. And that might not be something that is just this month. That might be something that is sustained over time. So... Um, yeah, overall, yeah. fairly interesting number. The other, only other thing I wanted to include was the year-to-date inflation. So, just this year, the first seven months of the year, we're at 4.2%. So, um, probably going to be okay. in the, I would imagine, in the 5 to 6% range by the time we get to the end of the year. And the yeah, big, you'd imagine so. Yeah, and the big question is, is it transitory? Brandon, is it going to go away? Oh, why shake, do you ask me these that, questions, shake that crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, that's that's this is this is your you getting me back for asking you where Robin Hood's gonna yeah, be what's, <laughs> last week. What's twenty twenty two inflation gonna be, Brandon? <laughs> what's the what's, CPI? Sorry, <laughs> what's the twenty twenty two CPI gonna look like, Brandon? <laughs> Jeez, oh gosh, it's going to be uh, go bold. It's going to be twenty percent. Oh God. <laughs> And the world's going to fall to pieces. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, but that that is interesting. Now now that I know what core inflation is, that is kind of bonkers that they like to use that that number more. I can, And I do understand your rationale and, and why they do it with, um, you know, food and energy being quite volatile. I, to be honest, I don't think food is particularly volatile, but maybe I just don't know enough about about that um, about that industry. But energy, you can understand. You go to like the petrol station, and it's like oh, it's a dollar thirty, and then it's oh, it's a dollar fifty per liter or, mm-hmm. or something. Um, but it, it's kind of weird if they're trying to get like a, an understanding of real inflation. I feel like core inflation misses the point because I mean. If there's two things that people are that real like citizens us on the ground are definitely going to be buying, it's <laughs> food and you know energy costs, power or, or petrol or, and stuff like that. So, hmm. um, yeah, that's uh, that that that's that's weird. And yeah, I, I do think I do think what your your little conspiracy theory you might <laughs> be onto something because you see it all over finance yeah. too. Um, you know, even when it comes to earnings, it's like there are three different measures of profitability, and it's like, oh, what, what, which one fits the story? Um, there are a couple of different margins you can use. There's, uh, you know, earnings per share, diluted earnings per share. It's just like there's uh, earning, uh, there's EBITDA. Um, it's just all these or adjusted EBITDA. It's just so many little um, numbers that you can pick that better suit your story. Um, that you always have to, you always have to do a little bit of digging to make sure that uh, that the the truth is actually coming through in the article, and it's not just uh, the numbers presented as per the author's opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly uh, right. In terms of um, that, that was pretty much it I had for that, for that story. The market didn't react too much just because the numbers were fairly in line with expectations, which were probably already baked into the market. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing too crazy happened in the market overnight, up slightly. So, slightly right, slightly okay. happy, I guess, with the numbers. But we will see. We're still seeing big year-over-year increases, big month-over-month increases. If it's transitory or significantly transitory and it's going to go away, then we should, I guess, expect to see that towards the end of this year. So, we will just have to wait and see what happens for the rest of wait this year. See. Yeah. Should we talk about the Olympics? Yes. Run us through. Quite topical. You know, I did I didn't even know, to be honest, I didn't see much of the Olympics. We came sixth. What? 
Did you know that? We came sixth in the Olympics. That sounds good. We're pretty we're pretty small yeah, country. It does sound good. Sorry? We're a pretty small country. We- yeah, well, that's what I, I think. It's like, well, we've got 26-odd million people and we're versing, you know, up against China and the United <laughs> States and they've got several hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, I feel like six isn't too bad. Who won the Olympics? Good on us. Who won? Yeah. Um, the United States. Right. I get confused because I can't remember how. I think, I think the- the way that they score it is just on gold medals. So, the, the country with the most gold medals wins. Yes. And if there's a tie, then it's the then the, the tiebreaker is the total amount. Oh, I think okay. it's the total amount of medals. I could be right. right. I don't know. But, um, yeah, very interesting. But you hear these, I don't know, rumors, stories going around that the Olympics, you know- you know, is the Olympic Games going to still be around in 10 to 20 years from now? Um, you know, uh, because the truth of it is, and I was doing a little bit of digging, the economics of the Olympics are actually terrible. <laughs> they are so, so bad. The Olympics yeah. costs so much money and it makes basically no money. <laughs> let me let me tell you about it. Mm. Let me tell you about it. So- First of all, let's talk about cost, right? So, I was, I was reading this article and I was saying that Tokyo initially said it would spend $7.3 billion on the Olympics, but a 2019 government audit put the actual spending around $28 billion. Whoa. Yeah. And, you know, fair enough if you think, oh, okay, so Tokyo stuffed up, but it's surely not like that every single time. Every Olympics since 1960 has run over budget (laughs) at an average of 172% in inflation-adjusted terms, according to an analysis by researchers at Oxford University. Wow. You know what? In a way, that doesn't really (laughs) surprise me because it's always this huge... I mean, you always hear about these cities that have the Olympics and they build all of these these arenas and everything, they do all of, all of this infrastructure and then when everyone leaves, it's just like abandoned. <laughs> and it's, yes. just, it's just like a, just a, just a, a mess that they've like created for, for like, what, two months. <laughs> mm. And I believe a part of the Olympics now is they have to have a plan for um, returning either de- like either tearing it down or repurposing the venues for public use. Yeah. But for a lot of things like um, th- there are a lot of temporary structures for, for example, like nobody need most, most cities don't need an Olympic water polo arena. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like generally um, like a, a temporary structure, but yeah, it's very strange. And um, I, I watched a, a video by the B1M that's right. talking about uh, how London after their Olympics, how they actually, uh, their plan to repurpose all of those buildings, all of those stadiums, which ones were, you know, how they were downsized because obviously the capacity for the public doesn't need to be anywhere near as large. Mm. But, yes, very, very interesting. So, that's another factor of it. Mm. Um, but, yes, the Olympics definitely definitely costs a lot. Um, every Yeah, every Olympic since 1960 is run over budget. They concluded that this was the highest overrun on record for any type of mega project, far exceeding roads, bridges, dams, or other major <laughs> undertakings. For the su- for the 2016 Summer Games, Rio de Janeiro budgeted $14 billion and spent an estimated $20 billion, according to data collected right. by the Council of Foreign Relations. Sochi, Russia, budgeted $10.3 billion for the 2014 Winter Games, spent more than $51 billion. <laughs> 
And London, the summer host in 2012, aimed for five billion and spent 18 billion. Wow. It's it- and this is. It's cra- Sorry, you go. I was just going to say, it's, it's crazy how much it varies. Like, Russia's spending $50 billion. Like, what did they- Yeah, I reckon. What's going on in Russia? They need- Gold plated. They, they need someone in there who knows how to manage money. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. Um, but it's so interesting because, because the Olympics is so expensive and everybody knows that their budgets just balloon out, mm. there are actually very few bidders for the Olympics. Like, for the 2022 Winter Olympic Games, there were- Two bidders. Wow. Two. China and Kazakhstan. And China got it. <laughs> for the Summer Olympics in for the Summer Olympics in 2024, there were also two bidders. This is the sum the big deal, the big dog, the Summer Olympics in 2024. Two bidders, the US and France. I did not know that it was so there were so little countries that wanted to do it. That's yeah. crazy. For context, there was five bidders for the 2000 Olympics. Right. The Sydney Sydney Olympics. Five bidders. So, it's ridiculous. And it's kind of crazy. Um, it's either- there's, there's two reasons for it. There's firstly, countries themselves just don't want to host the Olympics because it costs so much. Um, and actually- uh, also, beyond that, many times countries are really keen to host the Olympics because, oh, it's going to put our city on the map or whatever. Mm. And- a lot of countries bid for the Olympics and then before the selection process, they actually withdraw their bid voluntarily due to public outcry. Oh. Like literally the citizens say, we like we won't vote no, for you no. because <laughs> citizens know that they're going to be the ones that are paying for it. Yeah, and they know hmm. that it doesn't make that the the Olympics doesn't make money, so they're just going to pay for this big spectacle where everyone from overseas gets to fly in and have a great time, fly out, and then they're left with the bill. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of. Cr- and actually, yeah, sorry, no, you go. I was just going to say it is kind of crazy because yeah, I I, I presume you've have you got some uh, some like ticket sale numbers and that sort of thing, so we can kind of get put put this like twenty billion, fifty billion in perspective um, as to kind of what they're getting out of it. But um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it is. Uh, you would think that it could work economically, that it could be this big spectacle that that generates a lot of revenue, but I guess mm. maybe not. Yeah, there there would be a, there's a few keys to that. I think the the biggest key would be to already have the infrastructure for most events. True, um, but there's so there's like so many costs which make it hard to keep like keep the cost down. They have to build the athlete village. They have to obviously cater and provide accommodation for X amount of people. It's just ridiculous, and the the costs go on. And it's also people find it really hard to um, to keep a constant understanding of the budgets for the Olympics because some numbers they include this and don't include that and it's just a bit of a mess really um Mm. but yeah so so most people like most people honestly they just don't want the olympics and in fact i i found this article which said recent polling suggested that 83 (laughs) percent of people who live in japan believe the olympics should not take place in the country this summer a stark rebuke to uh what is typically a joyous event opposition to the tokyo games from japanese citizens has been consistent throughout the year according to polls the tokyo olympics estimated cost was 20 to 30 billion and we're going to start talking about revenue now so 20 to 30 billion i think the audit the government audit put it at 28 billion Mm. And the total revenue projected from the games was $6.7 billion. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> However, that estimate was expecting ticket sales, which obviously never happened. And ticket sales were oh. projected to be $800 million. So, Whoa. in $800 million, so that's uh, $5.9 billion in revenue estimated. And it cost them, what, $28 billion. I mean, as an investor, if I come to you with a project and mm. say, hey, look, I'll give you a good deal here. Give me $28 billion and in return, I'll give you revenue of, you know, $5.9 billion. Does that, that sounds like a good deal, right? You, you want it? You want it? I mean, honestly, Do you want honestly it? it's- Sign on the dotted line, Hamish. Sign it. Sounds like half the business is in the stock market at the moment. That'd probably have, if that was a company, that would have a trillion dollar valuation. <laughs> Yeah, that's what they need. Oh, take the Olympics public. Yes, that's what they Hamish. need. And then you have cr- stupid investors who just want to throw money at things. It's the Olympics. Yeah. I want to own the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, that's probably not a half bad idea. <laughs> Uh, it is, um, yeah, ridiculous. Uh, I, I can't believe yeah, it's it's, it's such a bad. I mean, but it, it does make sense when you explain the Im- infrastructure side of things. It would be like if uh, I don't know if every year the NBA had to build new stadiums, like for exactly f- to, to host the NBA regular season. Um, mm. That would obviously cost billions of dollars to do every single year, and that just chops out the entire margin, I guess. So, yeah, that does make sense. Maybe they need to just host it in like the same city <laughs> maybe yeah. we just need to like we need to find an island and we'll just like every country can like chip in <laughs> yeah <laughs> the have, olympic we, island yeah exactly how cool would that be you have this be awesome. massive island and uh people can go fly into this island every every country can have like a little shared ownership in it Mm, that would be sick. <laughs> in fact, that's actually they. This article interviewed like someone who's studied the economics of the Olympics, like for the longest time, written like three books about it or something. Mm. And this person said uh, that the number one solution to keeping the Olympics viable is just have one designated place where the Olympics is held. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I'm a, unpopular opinion, but I mean, it it does make sense. And the. He, he spoke about the reason why it shifted around so much is because back when the Olympics, you know, in the early days of the Olymp- of the modern Olympics, um, you know, plane travel, overseas, you know, travel um, was still, for the, for the average Joe, quite uh, inaccessible. So, they moved around the Olympics so that it would go around the world and, you know, people could experience the Olympics. But obviously, they were saying now, or, well, maybe not right now <laughs> with COVID, but generally speaking, now, uh, obviously, international air travel is as easy as it's ever been. You know, uh, yeah. you can stay overseas and it's fine. It's, it's not going to, you know, it, it's expensive, but it's not going to cost you, you know, an, an arm and a leg kind of thing. It's not inaccessible. Like, like it's not inaccessible. was yeah. inaccessible for the vast majority of people unless you had, I mean, unless unless you're ready to spend like thousands of dollars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, now, I mean, it is expensive. I mean, in a way, I guess you would say it's still inaccessible to a lot of people. But, um, I mean, with yeah, it, it's a lot cheaper, a lot more accessible. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I never really thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Like when did so this guy's literally saying, yeah. "Look, we got to keep the Olympics alive." Um, this this guy wasn't even particularly bearish on the Olympics. Like he oh. likes the Olympics, but he was saying, "If you want to keep it alive, just have one designated place where the Olympics are held." And yeah, it's just it's just insane. It also, 
I wanted to, to just, I've got a couple more facts here. Mm-hmm. So that I just spoke about the Tokyo Olympics, 28 billion, and they were going to bring in what, 6.7 after ticket sales, which never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, for more context, I found the 2008 Beijing Games generated uh, 3.6 billion in revenue. Uh, but the host city spent more than $40 billion. And then the 2012 Summer Olympics in London generated $5.2 billion compared to $18 billion in costs. Wow. So it's not like this is a, a once-off because of COVID and nobody, they're not making money. This is like an every time thing. It's pretty insane. Yeah. But uh, you know what? Um is it 2032, I think? Brisbane yeah. is hosting the Olympics. Yeah. twenty, Which got yeah, me thinking- are we are we going to be paying for this? Like, is this a is is the Australian taxpayer just going to have to foot the bill, or is it? Oh yeah, surely it can just be Queensland, right? <laughs> just Queensland. Yeah, I don't know how that yeah. works. Actually, is it the city that would would pay for that, or would it be part the city and part the the uh, the federal government? I don't know. Honestly, I, mean, I have person, no idea. So. Because yeah. I could make the argument, you could make the argument, you live in Melbourne, you don't live in Brisbane, yeah. you probably won't go to the Olympics. Why should you have to pay for something that's up there on in, in Brisbane? You know? I mean, I probably would go. That's- <laughs> yeah, I probably would go as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't live there, so why, why would I have to pay for it? Yeah, Ridiculous. exactly. But there you go. There you go. The Olympics, the grave economics of the Olympics. <clears throat> Turns out it's not actually uh, a good financial, a good financial uh, thing. <laughs> they'll say oh but don't you think it's good you know it's it's people coming together on the playing field as opposed around the world coming together on the playing field as opposed to on the battlefield and he's like yeah i get the symbolism but uh it's pretty expensive symbolism isn't it <laughs> <laughs> makes sense oh uh, dear anyway, anyway let's talk about phil town yeah so what's going on in phil town's world phil t- i haven't spoken about phil town in so long i feel like we haven't actually in a long time. Um, yeah, we, of, we just briefly touched on him talking about Alibaba last week. but Oh, did we? Did we that. talk about his uh, Alibaba position last week? Uh, just a little bit because we were talking about uh, China. Remember the Chinese That's crackdown? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I thought we could maybe talk a little bit more about his, uh, his SEC filing. So, um, I think, yeah, maybe we mentioned Alibaba briefly, but didn't go into some of the other things he's been doing, um, which I thought we could talk about. But, um, of course, he, uh, he, he manages a, a fund, Rule 1 fund, and uh, they actually have over $100 million in assets under management. So, wow. it's a pretty big fund. Um, and uh, as of last year, I believe we started to see these uh, these uh, filings, quarterly filings, where he reports what's in the portfolio so we can see. Um, I actually didn't know this, but the Rule 1 fund is like a small fund that sits within World Funds Trust, which is actually the, the fund that ends up reporting to the SEC. So, it's really difficult to find the data. Um, but fortunately, investing with Tom, buddy of ours, actually put together a video breaking down the data. So, I'd recommend you go check out his channel and his video where um, he actually went into the SEC filing and and was able to show Phil Town's overall portfolio. Um, right. But essentially- there was- So, sorry, just quickly, is this World's Fund Trust like a collection of, of other funds? Is yes, it? I believe so. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, so um, Phil Town, he, he basically made two significant moves during the period. We spoke about Alibaba last week, which now represents, I think, about 4.4% uh, of the portfolio. So, a pretty significant investment. Um, but he also invested in another company um, called Sprouts Farmers Market uh, and invested 4.5%. 
um, of the portfolio in there. So, he, you know, it was a big quarter for him, actually. He added, what, 9%, uh, you know, yes, 9, 9% if his portfolio changed during that period. Um, so, I thought we could, we, I could kind of go through Sprouts a little bit. I had to dive into the company. I thought it looked interesting. The surface level mm. numbers look really good. I mean, the company's growing revenues okay. and profits and equity and that sort of thing at double digits consistently over time. Um, it looks like a really, really good business on the surface. And I think there's some. There was a comment on our last podcast about someone wanting to, us to to look at this company, but um, mm. I, I feel like because we we mentioned it, we just mentioned it quickly last week. Right, we're talking about sense. how it's a com- <clears throat> yeah compara- comparative to Whole Foods, but we didn't know too much about it. So yeah, I, I'm interested. I'm interested. Yeah. So since then, I've done a, a a little bit of uh, research into the company um, and basically the it, it's a relatively small organic grocery chain. So, um, they have 362 stores. Um, as mentioned last week, they compete directly against businesses like Whole Foods, uh, but also, of course, conventional grocers. And um, the organic, fru- organic food sales in the US have increased at a rate of 10% per year for the last four five years, I believe it is, um, which is really, really fast. So, particularly over the last few years, um, the popularity of, um, of thinking a little bit more about having natural and fresh and organic foods um, has driven these grocery chains to perform quite well. Um, however, um, <laughs> there's a few things that I, I really didn't like um, when I was looking into this oh, really? business. So, um, I'll talk about those things and then I'll talk about the one thing that I think is uh, probably the best thing about this business and likely why Fieldtown, I think, invested in the company. But um, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, in terms of the management team, you know that I like to see um, the founding family still running the management team or at the very least a management team that's been there for a really long time so we can look at their track record and we can see what the management team has said over time how they set goals and whether they hit those goals. It's just really Mm -hmm. valuable to be able to see the management team across time. Uh, This management team is now made up of eight executives. Six of them have come in just in the last five years. So, new to the actual company itself, not just the executive team. Um, So, brand new team. The founding family was actually associated with this grocery chain and other ones for over five decades um, and they are no longer associated with the company as, as of uh, 2012. So, um, that was kind of one thing that was a little bit of a red flag for me. Not that it means the management team is bad, but that we just don't have good data on them um, and uh, it mm. makes it a little bit more uncertain. The other thing is that's uh, quite negative is the revenue growth at their stores. So, between, oh, okay. between 2010 and 2015, revenue growth was really good um, at their stores, between 6 and 8% um, of comparable store sales growth, which is really high, um, much higher than the average grocery store was growing during that period, um, which means that they were capturing market share, stealing customers from conventional grocery stores. However, in the last five years, that's really dropped down severely to 1% to 2%. And if you actually look over the two-year comparable store sales from 2020 and 2021, it's now negative. Um, so, oh. uh, you know, to me, that's a that's an indication that the newer stores, as they expand further across the US and not performing as well as some of their mature stores may have done in the previous decade. Um, so, I mean, a couple of things to, to think about and uh, things that I wasn't uh, too happy to see. 
that you might not notice if you look at their top level numbers because they, they are growing at double digits and they're doing it by expanding their store network. Um, but in my view, uh, it's not enough for you just to be expanding the store network. I need to see that the underlying stores are doing really, really, really well, that they're attracting a lot of customers and that sort of thing. Mm. But there is one thing that I, uh, I, I did like about Sprouts. Um, I think the best thing about it is probably its valuation, <laughs> right, which, is, okay. uh, which is probably why Phil Town's gone and wanted to make this investment. The, the good thing about management is that they make their expectations really clear. Like they have a clear plan for what they want to do over the next five to okay. 10 years. They want to increase the number of stores by 10% each year. And they want to see low single-digit revenue growth at their stores. So, if you combine those, you're looking at low teen growth. So, maybe like 12% or something like that or 11%. Right. And the stock's currently trading at about 10 times earnings. So, if they hit those goals, the stock will do extremely well. Um, wow. So, yeah. it's really just a matter of whether you think they will hit those goals, whether you trust management, which I don't because they don't have they haven't been there for a very long time but they don't have the track record yeah, yeah. it's uh it's difficult to say maybe phil has some kind of inside information around the management team maybe he's met with the management team and um you know he, he can um kind of squash some of the concerns that i have just looking as an outsider um but yeah i don't know what are your thoughts yeah Any- there you go have yeah, it'd be interesting to really dive in and see how the management team over, say, the past five years or so ha- have done. You know, go back and I don't know, even listen to old conference calls and read about you know whether how many stores they had, um, and then you know how those new store additions have have been performing and and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I wouldn't say it's a red red flag but i'd say it's a yellow flag mm. when there's when there's new management um i mean it's something that you just got to keep a close eye on because you're right you don't know how their track record's going to be um but but yeah i mean absolutely in an, in an ideal world you would love for the founders to still be you know if, yeah. if the business is performing well and it's run by the founder then it's just like oh yes <laughs> this is fantastic especially when you can just tell the founder is just so pumped up about their business you know the classic example is like an Elon Musk even though he's not technically the founder of Tesla or space he's the founder of SpaceX mm. but you can just tell he is so pumped up about those businesses he treats them like his own like he spends more time with those businesses than his own children <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> Um, and that's uh, that's a really helpful thing. And especially when, when you get founders, it's also the case usually that all of their, you know, net worth and all of their uh, financial success is tied up into the success of their companies. So, they work harder to make sure, you know, the, obviously your interests as shareholders are very much aligned with their- It's just so many benefits of, of founder-run businesses. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that- even if there are question marks uh, about the business itself, that inside uh, that insiders that uh, that big money managers are still buying it if it's got a good valuation, because I feel like for the big money, uh, there's they're just accumulating so much cash. I mean, even Warren Buffett in the Berkshire annual meeting was saying, "Look, we're actually considering putting some money into some not so great, uh, you know, or, or investments that we don't know." you know, 
this uh, we don't know the same amount that we normally would uh, before we sunk it, sunk money into it which I was just like wow Warren Buffett's saying that are you serious <laughs> yeah so it doesn't surprise me as soon as these insight these institutional guys find a stock that's decently valued they just jump on it because I feel like they're really just stuck for opportunities right now yeah yeah exactly fortunately especially they're running funds they're running funds with investors that they've got to impress so yeah yeah exactly right just an added pressure that uh that doesn't yeah. exist for us individual investors but fortunately yeah. I think next week we'll probably have the major 13f filings coming yes. out for a lot of uh, for a lot of the big investors so we'll be able to see portfolios for for what Berkshire Hathaway and uh, Seth Klarman's portfolio and I don't know yeah. I can't think of Monish, Monish all of them yeah yeah yep Charlie Munger Daily Journal although that really doesn't change much um, yes yeah they're, they're all of them all of them Michael Burry all of them yeah they'll be they'll be coming out so expect a lot of interesting uh, <laughs> interesting institutional investor discussion next week I would say yeah absolutely. You- I'm sure there'll be something. There'll be something in there that'll that'll be interesting to talk about. Mm, for sure. Where do you want to go from here? Right. Uh, let's. You want to jump into some Q and A? Yeah, we'll we do some Q and A questions. Yeah, we've got a, a few Q and A questions building up again. I mean, I feel like I say this every week, but we've we've always got a, quite a few because uh, you, you guys always ask lots of questions, which is really good. Gives us lots lots um, of different things to talk about, especially when we get to the Q and A section. But um, if you do have any questions that you want to ask for next week's podcast, then make sure you head over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the Young Investors Podcast. Just click on the latest episode and leave your questions as a comment below that video. Um, I'll ask this first question to you. Uh, Hey guys, what are your thoughts on holding legacy stocks? When I knew a lot less about investing, I bought a small amount of uh, Eli Lilly stock. It panned out pretty well, but I don't know anything about pharmaceuticals. Should I hold it since it's working out or ditch it because it's a liability that I don't understand? Mm. I've been caught in this position before back when I didn't know as much as I know now about investing and I held these stocks... um, what, what would you define as a legacy stock? Just a stock that's been, you know, around in that industry. It's, it's like a, a big classic, you know, like a Telstra or something. Would Telstra be a legacy stock? Yeah, I think so. Just a more mature business, blue chip. Yeah. I don't know. Blue chip. Yeah. Defensive kind of blue chip. I can talk about this because I bought into Telstra um, back before I knew what I know now. And to be honest- I did a whole lot of learning. I read a whole lot of books and I realized that actually I don't know enough about Telstra mm. to be holding the stock. But, you know, it's a telecommunications company. There's probably some, you know, internet's getting bigger and bigger, more data's being used, 5G's around the corner. There was a case where I could just stick with it and just let it, just hold it. I mean, it pays a dividend. Um, but I actually decided that I would sell it because quite simply, I didn't understand it well enough. Um, I just didn't have that confidence that, you know, there were some industry-wide tailwinds that maybe Telstra would benefit from, but I just didn't know how they were going, like their own company plan to execute and what sort of growth that would make and what price that that should send the shares to, et cetera, what valuation, what would be a fair valuation. So, uh, I just decided that, you know, I don't understand it. Um, I had made a little bit of money at the time on the position. So, I said, you know what, let's just close it out Mm. because- 
I think that's Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett's rule number one of investing is don't lose money. And I was in that situation. I was there and I was in a position where I could lose money um, quite easily because I didn't understand what was going on. So, I just decided to take my money off the table um, Yeah, and make sure that I didn't lose money in that case. So. Mm. Do you, ha- do you ha- have any similar stories or, or have you not made this mistake before? Or? No, pr- prob- probably pretty similar. I mean, I think like most people who eventually get into value investing, you, your investing doesn't start that way. And maybe you have a portfolio mm. of businesses that you don't understand or that don't actually meet certain requirements. And um, that was certainly the case for me. I mean, I remember one in particular, there was a couple um, but one in particular is Vocus Group, which is a telecommunications company in Australia, funnily enough, mm. um, smaller one than uh, Telstra though. Um, and I bought into that company and within a month or so, there was a takeover bid. So, it shot up a bunch, um, but wow. I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I ended up just selling that stock. I did the same with Ramsey Healthcare. I held for a very short period of time. Um, there was a bunch of businesses that I, I basically purged out of my portfolio um, after you know learning Warren Buffett's principles and realizing I really don't know what these stocks are going to do in the future. And if you don't know what they're going to do, then there's really no reason to, to hold on to it because it could just as mm. equally go to zero as it could go could up, blow up if you don't understand it. So, um, I did that with mm. everything except I kept one position, which was National Australia Bank. And it was the first investment I yeah. ever made. And it represents less than 1% of my portfolio. <laughs> and it's literally there for sentimental value. I just, I just keep it there because there was a story um, Warren Buffett had about the first stock that he bought when he was like 11 or something and how he sold it a couple of weeks later. But if he had actually held it, it was like one of his would have been one of his greatest investments or something. Right. So for sentimental value, I don't understand the business and it's very small, but I just keep that and I'm probably going to hold that stock and not touch it, not add to it, not sell it for as long as possible. <laughs> so I tell you what, yeah. you pro- you probably will do all right because I mean it's big fat dividend. It's it's one of the big four Australian banks. Fat dividends. I mean the banks aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So you probably uh, and it's your earliest stock. So you've got the longest compounding period on it. So you probably will do very well on it if you just left it. Yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, it's done pretty terribly so far, honestly. Yeah, it pays. Oh yeah, they've been caught up in a lot of a lot of crap though, haven't they? Yeah, National Australia Bank. Yeah, yeah I mean all the banks as well through that. But yeah, yeah, it pays a six percent dividend. Um, yeah, but yeah, just let that compound over time. Yeah, so not bad, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> yeah, all right, let's move on. I uh, I'll read you this one. Thank you for the podcast, guys. Thank you for listening. You. Um, I have some questions for you. I heard from both of your guys' channels that you guys started a business. Can you talk about them a bit? Hmm. Uh, like, what do you guys do? What kind of business is it? Uh, also, if uh, any tips, if one were to start their own business. Thank you, as always. Yeah. You want to go first? That's a, yeah, that's a- Well, I guess yeah. we've both got businesses in our YouTube channels. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think maybe when you just, if someone's just watching the YouTube channel or say just listening to this podcast where we're so casual, um, it might not kind of click immediately that, you know, this could actually be a real business. I know that certainly when I talk to people in real life and I tell them what I'm doing, like the almost the first kickback is- do you make any money doing that? Like, yeah, you, I know, I know, <laughs> that's so like, true. Like, it's almost like, oh, that's that's cute. You <laughs> and the thing is, I think a lot of people misunderstand how valuable it is to generate, you know, ten thousand or hundred thousand um, people of traffic coming through your channel every single week. 
um, and what that means yeah. for advertisers. So running ads through Google AdSense and, and generating uh, ad revenue, spon- direct sponsorships like the one we have with ShareSite. And then just also running our own programs or, or selling products like uh, um, both of us have, uh, well, Brandon has a, has a course on investing and, and tax and and I have a, an investing community. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if we, of, of course, the reason, I think the main reason I, I can probably speak for both of us, the main reason why we like doing YouTube and, and podcasting is because it's a really fun outlet to talk about a passion we have and engaging with the community. But if you put that to a side for a second, um, it's mm. actually a really, really interesting uh, business model to have, to be able to create content um, and to get access to a huge audience quite relatively easily um, in yeah. a very niche area uh, with very little to no marketing costs <laughs> because yeah. people just come and watch because they want to watch the content. So the cost really yeah. is just the time and and small amounts of money that go into creating the content. Um, mm. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. It is like the whole YouTube business model, uh, online traffic business model is extremely powerful. I always like for people that don't really get it, I compare it to like a petrol station saying, okay, so you own, well, I don't compare it to, yeah, I I contrast it with a petrol station. I'm like, okay, so you own the local petrol station. The people that come and buy petrol from you are going to be the people that literally pass your petrol station, physically pass your petrol station. Mm. You know, someone in Canada is not going to buy petrol from you. Someone in Sydney is unlikely to buy petrol from you. Someone in Perth is definitely not buying petrol from you. Um, And then, you know, if you wanted to get your name out there that you've just started up this new petrol station, you would have to pay for advertising get your name out there on the radio, on TV or something, that costs you money. So, when you compare that to a system where we can make content, you know, our, our, our product is the, you know, are the videos that we make um, and then when we make them, they can be viewed by anyone regardless of where you live as long as you've got access to the internet and watch YouTube, then you can check out our videos. So, we do have people in Canada, India, um, Madagascar, you know, everywhere around the around the world that uh, tunes in. And then on top of that, if you make a good video, say if you make a good product, then YouTube will grab that video and they will basically advertise it on your behalf. Mm-hmm. They will pump it in front of more people, you know, so that they click on the video and give you more views. Um, so, it's essentially like if you have a really good petrol station, then the petrol station God will just advertise your petrol station for free. So, it's just there's so many perks to it. This online business model is just so powerful. Um, but yeah, so that's definitely number one for me. And then, yeah, I've, I've got Profitful, um, which um, which is, yeah, as you say, just a couple of courses on investing, a couple of courses on tax in Australia. But um yeah, man. On, yeah, just online business. The business model is just so insane. The margins are high. It's just, um, it's very powerful, very powerful. And I really believe in what uh, Gary Vaynerchuk says, where people should, like businesses, regardless of what you do, should be making online content. Hmm. Like consider yourself in part a social media company, yeah. a media company, make make videos because that's like free advertising. And if you do it well, there's no reason why those videos or those, you know, pieces of content on Instagram or TikTok can't actually earn money themselves. Um, uh, yeah, it's just insane. It's really crazy how- 
I don't know. Honestly, it's really crazy how profitable it can be as well. Yeah. I, um, I know for sure when I started getting into this stuff, I really hadn't thought through like the economics of it or like how you could actually make a lot of money, but it makes complete sense. I mean, if you have a million people watching you over the course of a year, so a million different pe- people see your content at some point mm. over the course of a year and you are selling a product, let's say for around $100 um, and you can get 1% of people to 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 um, to buy that product, 1% of that million people, you're at a million dollars in a year of revenue. So, yeah. um, it's, uh, it's when you think of it in that way, wow, I just need 1% of people to buy. And of course you have to have something good, <laughs> you can't just, yeah. you, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to have, actually be selling something good or maybe you're getting advertising revenue out of that person indirectly from an advertiser. But when you think of it like that, um, the economics start to, to seem, you know, really crazy. Um, and there are mm. a lot of people on YouTube that are getting have a million people see their content over the course of a year um, and yeah. some that have way more than that that come through their content. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's volatile. That's for sure. It's not a, it's not a, oh, it's absolutely it's not volatile. a steady uh, stress-free um, business. That's for sure. One month will be up yeah. 50%, another month's down 50%. So, <laughs> you got to mm. live with that a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a wild ride, I would say, for the both of us. Yeah. Yeah, you can't bank on your earnings being consistent, can no. you? But uh, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like if we, we get a metric on our YouTube channels called our CPM, which is basically how much uh, we get paid per thousand views. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we get what, 55% of our CPM, yes, don't we? Yes, we get 55, yeah. Yeah, because- YouTube gets the other 45%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my, like, f- for example, my uh, 55% of my CPM is about $15. So, you know, if the channel does, you know, one and a half million views a month, you can just do the basic maths on that. That'll be like $22,500, which is, so it's, it's definitely, and that's why I say to people, you know, people that just, I, I recommend people start YouTube channels. And they're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, what would I talk about? I'm not interesting. You know, it's too hard. I'm like, oh, it's just such an opportunity. You know, what if, you know, you might think that nobody would watch you, but I mean, YouTube's got over one and a half billion monthly active users. I mean, there's going to be an audience for every type of content. I mean, one of the, one of the highest paid YouTube channels last year was somebody that makes different types of slime and squishes (laughs) it through their fingers. I'm like, come on. Come on. I mean, I could make some slime and squish it through my fingers. If I had that idea, initially, I'd think, man, nobody is going to watch these <laughs> videos. I literally make slime and then I go squish, squish, squish. But hey, there is an audience for everything. So, you know, people that are on the fence want to maybe start a YouTube channel. I mean, give it a go. Obviously, different niches have different CPMs. Um, like we're in the the highest, I think, by a fair margin. Yeah. Uh, finance and investing. So I wouldn't bank on your CPM or your fifty five percent cut of your CPM being fifteen dollars. But yeah, I mean, there's still money to be made. Uh, it's just insane. It's insane. Yeah. Anyway, crazy. Yeah. Um, it's powerful. Give it a go. Start a YouTube channel, guys. <laughs> Start a YouTube channel. Uh, All right, should we finish up there? Yeah, yeah, let's finish up there. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good discussion, I think. Hopefully, some people got some get some value out of those kinds of uh, 
snippets, just a little stepping a little bit away from investing sometimes. Talk a little bit about ourselves mm-hmm. for a second. But um, thanks everyone for tuning in as always. Um, as I mentioned, if you have more questions, feel free to head over to the YouTube version of the podcast and leave your questions over there. Uh, thanks ShareSite for sponsoring as always. ShareSite.com forward slash young investors if you want four months off a yearly subscription or you just want to try it out for free, try a free plan and have up to 10 holdings in your portfolio. Thanks, Brandon, for joining me as always. No and we'll be back next week. See you later, guys. See you then. See you later.